I'd like to talk a little bit this morning about what the Buddha called the three characteristics. In the understanding of the Dharma, suffering, unnecessary suffering, arises because of clinging, because we cling. And ultimately, we cling because we, at a very fundamental level, misunderstand the world. And we misunderstand ourselves. We uh, believe our perceptions to be something real in a way that they're actually not. And this goes, this is very deeply actually woven into our consciousness. So we actually, uh, the path of practice, what we need to do is we need to retrain our way of looking at the world. Uh, retrain our way of looking so that it doesn't lead to uh, suffering, to problems, to difficulties for ourselves. But retrain it so that it leads to freedom. Uh, theor- theoretically, if you, if you read some of the text, if mindfulness, uh, the, the practice of attention and awareness that we're engaged in, if that uh, gains some steadiness and continuity over time, gains, gains some power, uh, theoretically what's supposed to happen is these three characteristics of existence become very evident to us. They stand out. <coughs> So, at least that's the theory. And uh, what they are, the three characteristics are the, the quality of impermanence. That everything in the world, outer or inner, has this quality of not lasting. Eventually it will fade, it will die, it will move out of existence. Changing nature of things. There's impermanence. There's uh, what's called dukkha, which in this context means really that everything, again, out or in it, really has the quality of not being capable of providing us with a lasting satisfaction. So somehow inherently uh, not really able to do it for us. Permanence, dukkha, uh, this quality of unsatisfactoriness. And the last one, anatta in Pali, which means uh, everything that arises is uh, not self. It's not me or mine. It doesn't belong to me, nor is it me. So I'll talk a bit more uh, in detail about these as we go through. So impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and uh, this quality of not being me or mine, not belonging to me. Now, what's quite important to realize, this, this isn't just a sort of intellectual idea, oh yeah, it's just another Buddhist list, and right, I understand that, and we sort of put it on the shelf and, and uh, <laughs> go, go back to you know, our, our, our practice. They're actually, um, the Buddha was actually not that concerned with making... Uh, these statements about reality and then just saying that this is how it is, folks. 
what he was concerned about is, is something very practical. It's like, actually, you should look this way. You should engage in this way of looking at the world if you want to move towards freedom. If you want your heart to open and move towards freedom. This is the way that you need to actually deliberately look at the world. So what, what he's saying is not a statement about reality. It's, something, it's an encouragement for a way of practicing for a way of seeing the world, seeing ourselves. It's, a very, it's very pragmatic, there's, there's, a, there's a real difference there. And, as I said, we need to look this way if, if the heart is going to move towards freedom. It's a way of looking that, uh, that uh, helps us to enter into a stream that moves towards, towards freedom, towards love, towards that kind of peace in the world. And we need to do it uh, in a very deliberate way, actually, perhaps. Sometimes in in uh, practice, we can get the impression that I'll just I'll just just be mindful. I'll just be with what is. I'll just be, and and there is a real beauty in that. It's very much a lovely way to practice. But for I would say for most of us, it's actually not going to be enough. Or I would question whether it will be enough. Just that simply being with what is, uh, it, may not, uh, it may not have enough power in it to actually break through some of the constrictions of the heart. Most often, the Buddha, when he taught, he would basically explain you know, get, get some concentration together, get some calmness of the mind together. Then he would say, and then take up your theme. So again, this not, uh, not so much just being with whatever, but actually deliberately saying, I'm going to reflect on this or that element of my world, of my experience, in a particular way. It's quite, it's quite deliberate. And uh, Ajahn Chah, the... Um, probably one of the most famous uh, Thai forest meditation masters from the 20th century, he would say, just keep filing everything away in, into one of these three characteristics. Just keep doing that. It's, very, it's a very deliberate thing that we're adding to our mindfulness. It's interesting to me sometimes why... I mean, sometimes people hear this and, and, and they uh, take to the idea right away, but oftentimes people, people don't. It's sort of, I mean, I'm sure when I first heard it, it probably just went in one ear and out the other. It's quite a question, actually, for me. Why, why don't we do that? Why is there some, oftentimes some resistance to doing this? And I've uh, talked to a few people uh, sometimes, and there is, there is this... Uh, a bit of a reluctance to engage engage the mind and heart this way. It can seem like, well, I've just got so much stuff going on. There's just, <laughs> you know, there's difficult emotions going on, there's memories coming up, there's this grief coming up, fear. My mind is like a, you know, crazy monkey, whatever. Um, and when that clears, uh, or when I've dealt with that, then I'll, then I'll get to this other stuff. Um... But maybe we, we could be a bit more willing to actually experiment. 
And maybe it doesn't have to be so linear that way, that when we've cleared out all our stuff, then we can begin to work in this other way. And just to check in our practice, is there, is there a willingness to, uh, to experiment? Or we may, uh, we may wonder, well, what, what does... If I sit and I notice the changing nature of, my, of the feeling tone of my body sensations, what on earth does that have to do with my problems? It can seem so removed and abstract when we're dif- dealing with something difficult. But see what it has to do with our problems. It may, it may have something very, very uh, real, very intimately connected with problems that seem to have nothing to do with that. To actually begin to look at impermanence, to begin to look at this qualities of unsatisfactoriness and not-self. Or we may think, when, I'm, when my mind's settled down, when I'm more calm, when I've established mindfulness more, but actually, as I'll hopefully explain, that looking in terms of these three characteristics actually should uh, lead to a kind of calming of the mind. There's a real, uh, there's letting go involved in them. There's actually some peace that comes from them. It's not that we necessarily have to wait uh, till we feel really calm. Now, it's true that uh, when we do contemplate the changing nature of things, the dying nature of things, their unsatisfactoriness, that can uh, bring up some real sadness for us when the heart begins to open to that reality. It can bring up sadness, it can bring up fear, uh, it can bring up a real sense of disillusionment with the world. Disappointment. Um, that's very true. Uh, the Buddha, in one of the great Mahayana texts, uh, the Diamond Sutra, right at the end, he says, Thus should you think of all this fleeting world, like a drop of dew or a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud a bubble in a stream, a flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream. It's actually a very strong word, I mean, beautiful poetic images, but uh, it can be that we hear something like that. It's actually uh, kind of jarring or unsettling in a way. Especially, and for most of us this is the case, when there's when there's actually nothing else to replace the things in the world, the things that are impermanent. We just get a sense that the world is kind of pulled uh, away, like a rug from underneath us. And what have we got to hold on to? What have we got to stand on? So they can very... Uh, fear and un- unsettledness when we begin, when the heart begins to open to impermanence if there is no sense of something other, can lead almost to a a sense of nihilism. You know, well, what is the world? It's nothing. It's nothing, no point. If we talk about impermanence a little bit, uh, sometimes it absolutely is necessary for uh, the heart 
to have to open to the difficult side of impermanence. So to uh, the losses that we encounter as we move through life in ourselves and you know around us when people die, whether it's parents or friends or uh, family, loved ones. A certain unique expression of a person has has gone from the world. You know, the particular way they laughed, or the, their particular humour, their particular way of uh, expressing love, whatever it was, or their particular things that annoyed us, it's just gone. It's passed from the world. It exists only in memory now, and that too will fade. Or we've been in a relationship uh, with someone we love and that ends and those things that we used to share the activities that we used to do the, the places we used to go that's all gone it's all gone and not to be repeated even uh, can, can be you know just something like moving house you know uh, I was born in uh, in the house in London where my mother still lives. Born there, you know, 40 years ago, and uh, they lived there before that. And my I was born there. My father died there, and, and my mother was going to move. And uh, there was just this feeling of of grief that came up, like a loss of the house. And it wasn't actually particularly that I had uh, you know great happy memories of childhood there. <laughs> Um, and it's not even a, a very nice house, particularly. But it's just, uh, we form these attachments to things, and then things change. And it will be, uh, she changed her mind, but uh, it, it will be the end of that whole um, sense of connection with a place. And there can be grief when we open to impermanence in this way. There can be a sadness. And... If we're to move towards the truth and move towards open-heartedness in life, we need to, uh, in a way, to look that right in the face and open our hearts to it. This uh, impermanence, when when the heart does open, you can actually see it all around us, on every every level, moving through nature, all around and through us. And whatever age we are, I'm sure we've all had the experience that it just seems like our childhood was yesterday, literally, playing in the street or whatever. The time just goes. And similarly, whatever age we are, it's not a very long time till we die. Death is is not very far. There's a poem by Mary Oliver. It's called Morning Walk, and uh, about the sense of impermanence. She says, Little by little, the ocean empties its pockets, foam and fluff, and the long, tangled ornateness of seaweed, and the whelks, ribbed or with ivory knobs, but so knocked about in the sea's blue hands that their story is at length only about the wholeness of destruction. 
they come one by one to the shore, to the shallows, to the muscle-dappled rocks, to the rise to dryness, to the edge of the town, to offer to the measure that we will accept it, this wisdom. Though the hour be whole, though the minute be deep and rich, though the heart be a singer of hot red songs and the mind be as lightning, what all the music will come to is nothing, only the sheets of fog and the fog's blue bell. You do not believe it now, you are not supposed to. You do not believe it yet, but you will, morning by singular morning and shell by broken shell. So as I say, a real part of this, not the whole of the spiritual path, but a real part of it is to really have that willingness to open to this ending of things, this dying, that uh, it's impossible to move through life without being touched by And can the heart uh, be willing to open to that, to soften around it and really take it in? Now, actually, impermanence isn't always difficult. When when we are experiencing difficulty, uh, when we're experiencing difficulty in the body or difficulty with the mind or with the emotions, uh, actually, impermanence is something that we're glad about because <laughs> we can rest assured that what arises is on its way out. It's only passing through. And... Uh, Impermanence has, we're quite glad of it then. And as I said in the, uh, when I was talking about the mind states, we can, sometimes when things are difficult, it's almost all we can do is just remind ourselves, this too will pass. You just put that reminder in there as a way of uh, just generating a little ease and faith in the situation. And when things seem very solid, mind state or condition of the body or, or, or thought streams or whatever, just to really hone the attention a little finer and begin to see what seems so solid is actually not so solid. There are gaps in it. And if we just hold the attention there, we will see the gaps and the uh, myth of its solidity will be, will be uh, dissolved somewhat. So whether uh, something is positive or negative or just kind of neither, in between, uh, we still need to contemplate the impermanence, contemplate the changing nature. It's not just for certain situations, it's for everything. So really, as I said, make that a way of looking. Uh, when we uh, take it on as practice, as contemplation of impermanence, that we can actually think of it in, in terms of levels. So, uh, oftentimes in, in this tradition, it, there's a real encouragement to look at a very micro level of impermanence. So, uh, see the changing nature of things really, like within one second, just honing the attention, honing the concentration down, really looking at the flickering nature of phenomena within a second, within a moment even. Uh, 
And that can be very powerful for some people. That can be quite transforming. However, my experience uh, talking to people is that it's actually not always that transforming. You can just keep getting more and more concentrated and nothing much is happening, just seeing this very, very fast impermanence and there's not much freedom coming out. So just not to have that assumption that the more concentrated equals the better. It doesn't always work that way. Uh, but there is that level, certainly, to explore, the sort of micro level of, of, of our world. And then there's the everyday level. You know, in the course of a day, uh, how much uh, will our mind state change? Wake up grumpy and we, you know, it changes. <coughs> Uh, how much will our, our body state change? You know, from tiredness, from low energy to high energy to a uh, little pain somewhere to the relief of that pain. So just to track through the day, uh, maybe in each of, each of the foundations of mindfulness, just watch the, 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 the waves in the course of a day. Let that impermanence imprint on the mind. Or in terms of the uh, six senses, so uh, how you know the, I mean, amazing amount of change that goes on just in terms of visual sense throughout the day. Right? I mean, indescribable amount of change, or the hearing sense, uh, or the or the physical, the touch sense, or the taste. Um, it, can be, it can be quite interesting just to take a day and just to track that and really let that changing nature of things really, uh, as I say, really impress itself on consciousness. For me, uh, for myself, the, I find one of the most powerful ways of uh, contemplating impermanence is actually on a much larger scale. In a way to look at everything that's going on from... Uh, you could say, perspective of vastness. So, the universe is uh, 14 billion years old. A very, very long time. And it's going to last, apparently, at least that long again. And our lives are, you know, 50, 70, 90, 100, if we're really, really lucky, years. There's a tiny amount in that uh, vastness. And actually, to... So what happens, uh, every sight that we see, every, every, this talk now, this building, everything is kind of uh, you know, set in a context of absolute vastness, this incredible vastness. It comes and it goes, it, it arises for a very brief time and then it's gone. To give our perception of, of things, of ourselves and our lives and of moments, that context of vastness, and that context in a way of death too, because it will all fade in death. And we don't know what happens before and we don't know what happens afterwards. So this isn't morbid, this isn't like some depressing, uh, it's actually quite liberating to actually have have, um, the Buddha said, every breath to, to think of death, which sounds awful, but actually to have the courage to be willing to explore that practice a little bit and what it can actually, um, the way it can actually give a real sacredness to life and a real sense of wonder and preciousness to our life.
if, uh, if we take on the practice of contemplating impermanence when we're in formal meditation, um, what, what can sometimes happen is, is uh, the attention just keeps flickering around too quickly. So the chainsaw, and then this voice, and then body sensation, and this, and this, and this. And what, what, what will happen is that we'll just make ourselves dizzy. <laughs> And it may feel quite intense, and because of the intensity, we may feel like, oh, I'm really getting somewhere. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's probably not that helpful. So what's more helpful in formal practice is actually to perhaps just take one object. So, for instance, the body sensations, or the body sensations in one area, if you have some pain, for instance. And just really stay there and say, I'm going to... The main thing I'm going to notice here is the impermanence. So it's not the clarity of it, it's not the how it exactly feels, it's the impermanence is my number one priority. I'm just noticing the impermanence over and over. Uh, it could be that we just sit down and we just place the attention in the heart area. And we just say, I'm just going to notice what moves through the heart, what emotions, what even hints of emotion move and just watch their changing just watch their impermanence and notice their impermanence so to really be quite focused in that way can be really helpful so that the attention is quite steady um, or uh, there can be a kind of a sense that awareness is uh, quite broad quite uh, global in a way it's taking everything in there's a space of awareness we're sitting in that space. And within that space, there are sounds, there are body sensations, there is a flicker of feeling, of thought. And just within the steady space of awareness, a global sense of awareness, of just noticing the changing. Just really focusing on the fact that things are changing. And watching... Uh, objects in consciousness fade into that space. They just disappear, disappear, disappear. Endless disappearing into the space. Actually, this brings a real calmness. This brings a real settling. It's a very worthwhile thing to, to practice. The, the Pali word for impermanence is anicca, a N-I-C-C-A. And uh, another translation of that is actually um, uncertain. So it's impermanent changing, but it's also uncertain, which means that sometimes we know things are going to change. We know things are going to pass, or we know things will come to us, but we don't know when, and we can't really control that. And how much in life... Uh, is timed to suit us. You know. When is it convenient for me to get ill? Um, or a separation from someone we love? Or death? When will that be timed right and convenient? So there's this uh, attention to the first characteristic, impermanence. The Second characteristic, uh, dukkha, d-u-k-k-h-a, um, which in this context means the unsatisfactory nature of things. They're, 
inability to really um, give us any kind of lasting happiness. So we can notice on a growth scale, what am I actually believing is going gonna, is gonna to kind of do it for me, make me happy? Um, if I get this relationship, if I get that, that car or object or that meal or, or whatever, and just, to, just to notice what am I actually thinking of in that way and then see, does it? Um, I mean, invariably the answer is no. Uh, it may also be in terms of absence. So it's not that I want anything, I just want this cold that I have to go away or I just want uh, this personality thing to go away. Or I just want um, that person to go away, <laughs> you know. And we, we tend to think their absence or the absence of something is going to do it for us. But again, just to see where we're investing in that way, and does it do it for us? There's something too about, um, in a way, the finiteness of things, because things are finite, and perhaps just we recognize their finiteness and we know they can't do it for us. Maybe something deep in us uh, knows that or longs for the infinite. Knows that the finite will be limited. We have that maybe it's just a dim, intuitive knowing. So things are dukkha, things are unsatisfactory, but not in a very real way, only, only when we look at them in a certain way, only when we have a certain relationship to them. So it's not really an absolute statement about things, it's when we have a certain relationship to them. At a slightly deeper level, the way to work with this characteristic of dukkha on a meditative level is um, to notice the suffering when we cling to something. So just to notice actually that when we cling, when we hold on, when we push away, there's actually suffering there. It might be very subtle, but there's suffering there. And to make that connection quite clear. When, and to feel that when we let go of that clinging, there's a release there. And to feel that release and feel the relief of it then in this way, through our body sense of suffering, body sense of release, we actually know, we understand, there's a real insight going very deep there. To work in this way, we have to look at uh, the Vedana link, the, f- the link of feeling tone that we explained in the opening instructions. So something's either pleasant or unpleasant or in between. When it's pleasant, we grasp. When it's unpleasant, we push away. And we can, we tend to do that. We can notice that tendency and actually feel it. You feel it in the body, sometimes in quite a subtle way. You feel a sense of contraction. Somehow just the mind, the body are contracting. Sometimes just very quiet because we're pushing or pulling. We tune into that and actually see, can we just relax that pushing and pulling and feel the suffering go, feel the ease. And then that sense of ease will be cramped again when the next little grasping comes along and we relax again. It's actually a very uh, way, a very 
useful and uh, powerful way to deepen practice. It's quite a subtle way of working. Contemplating the three characteristics moves towards a sense of freedom, moves towards a sense of peace and loveliness, actually. Uh, So we have to be careful not to let aversion creep in the back door and say, yes, I'm noticing the three characteristics, actually what we're doing is pushing everything away out of aversion, out of a kind of rejection. Sometimes this happens in quite obvious ways. I have a friend who was practicing in the States, uh, or was it in Burma, I can't remember, quite intensely uh, for several months. And she got into a period where uh, she said her, and it lasted for a few weeks, her body was really revolting her. She said it, it, she she was washing and taking care of it, but she said it stank and she found it disgusting and... She thought that she was contemplating the unsatisfactory nature of, of things, in this case her body. Actually what had happened in, a, in a, quite a gross way was her own aversion and whatever conditioning had just really come very strongly in the back door and it was using this sort of nice dharma speak to, to uh, cover itself up. So to be really careful about that kind of stuff. And it can happen in very subtle ways, just wanting to shut everything off, push everything away. Unfortunately, if we look in, the te- in some of the texts, you can find you know, things like the world is loathsome and disgusting and your body is loathsome and all this kind of stuff. And it's there in the text. And uh, I mean, all, all I can say is I think it, it's some kind of corruption that's happened over time through some misunderstanding. It's not, if there's rejection, that's aversion, that's not, that's not the middle way. So to really actually be quite vigilant about that. It's not that we're pushing things away, it's rather that we're letting go of certain views of things and certain relationships with things that come out of those views. And when we let go, it actually leads to life it leads to a real sense of beauty in life, a sense of brightness, a sense of loveliness. So this is a path that moves towards that. It's not uh, not to grey dullness, depression. So there's impermanence and there's dukkha. Um, anatta, this not me, not mine. It's a little bit more subtle to understand it's a little bit harder to understand actually um, what I'm going to do is leave that for now for this talk and uh, perhaps I or another teacher will will devote a whole talk to that because it's a bit more involved to understand what that means there's these three characteristics and usually what happens is people have their favorites or they have a favorite for a, a long stretch of time. And that's actually completely okay. So, you know, it might be your favorite to work with this sense of clinging and the contraction and the release of that. Or it might be a favorite to work with anatta or, or impermanence. That, that's completely fine. Actually, to, to go with what, uh, what you feel is working for you, what you feel is interesting, is op- opening things for you. 
perhaps the most obvious one to work with is impermanence, a sense of impermanence, because it's quite clear. It's just a matter of uh, maybe noticing it more keenly. Um, so oftentimes people start there. And then one can include the other characteristics from the point of view of one's favorite. So if your favorite is impermanence, then you can see, well, how can things be satisfactory if they're just disappearing all the time? How can they give me that lasting happiness? And how can they be self? If, if, how can anything I see be self if it just keeps disappearing? Because the sense of self is something lasting. If we begin and, and really give some uh, time and practice to, to, to looking, as I say, looking in this way, looking for and at, noticing deliberately the three characteristics, um, it can uh, very much, over time, with practice, lead to a real sense of, uh, of peace, of equanimity, that just settles in the being. Um, a real sense of spaciousness to the awareness, a sense of silence. And that can happen to lesser or greater degrees. But when that happens, uh, to really, or if that happens, to really let oneself feel that and feel the beauty of that. Um, Feel the silence, rest in it. To really let that uh, touch the heart. So there's a sense of silence, there's a sense of space, and there's a sense of things coming and going in that space, and not being me, not being mine, not lasting. But the space somehow is holding all of that. The awareness somehow is holding all of that. So it's not only that we're paying attention to um, obvious phenomena, a sensation, a thought, a, a, a feeling. It's actually a sense of this space of awareness that contains it, and a sense of its peace and its loveliness. Sometimes that sense can be so deep for some people at some times that um, that there's a sense that it's something ultimate that we've we've come across. Uh, well, this this must be it, you know. <laughs> uh, this must be the unconditioned, or whatever other words that we've heard about. It's not ultimate, um, but it's is very. There's a potential to to find there a sense of very deep peace. And a sense of real love there, somehow, paradoxically. Um, Love because, actually, if we contemplate with the three characteristics, we're kind of giving an equality to all things. Whether we like them or not, whether we're for them or against them, all things are impermanent. All things are not able to satisfy us forever. And all things are not me or mine. And that's a way of kind of evening things out, giving this equality to things. In that equality is the deeper nature of love. No no push, no pull, no rejection, no favorites. There's a boundless, unconditional love that imbues that. So 
to look in this way with practice is is transforming. It has the capacity to transform us, and it's not life denying. Some people, uh, I was talking to a yogi, not, not here, but somewhere else, uh, a week or so ago, and she was saying how actually there's a real fear of of. Uh, expansiveness somehow in practice that she notices there's every time there's a sense of things opening out uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fear that comes and she wants to close it down or it's like a fear of annihilation and this is quite common so what she noticed that she did, does is she keeps holding on to looking at objects so instead of letting an exp- expansiveness come, a sense of awareness, a sense of space and silence, she keeps looking at objects. So, what's, what's, you know, if there's something, particularly if there's something troubling, or that's something to keep the attention occupied. So, uh, there are objects in awareness and just keeping the attention, grabbing onto them. But we actually don't need to do that. So, if there is some fear around, it can be... Uh, something we open to in a very gradual way, this sense of expansiveness. In the same way that, uh, you know, you put a toe to test the water in, in a hot bath, just just a little bit, and then maybe put a bit more, and we get used to it, and we, we see, actually, it's okay. It's really okay. Uh, we can let go slowly into a sense of opening. Some people don't feel that fear, but, but it is quite common. We can actually, we need to get familiar with it, and that usually happens in a very gradual way. So we don't need all the time to be obsessed with things, objects, phenomena. We can actually broaden out and get uh, a sense of the, the space and what's holding it. So again, sometimes in the text, it, it, it almost reads like the contemplation of the three characteristics is something that. Uh, you know, uh, brings this huge onset of hysteria and panic and sort of pulling your hair out and throwing up and whatnot. It, it, it shouldn't be that way. It should be actually something that, I mean, there are obviously difficulties when the heart opens that way, but it is something that moves towards <coughs> calmness, moves towards peace, towards a sense of freedom, towards a sense of beauty. contemplate, I mean to go a little bit beyond even, we can contemplate uh, impermanence and, and all this and we will get a real sense, uh, hopefully, we will get a real sense of very much an okayness with all the changing nature of things. This is coming and going, changing, dying and there can be a real sense with practice that we're just okay with change. We've practiced with change and we can really feel in our lives okay with it. And there's a a relative sense of of peace and sometimes quite deep peace with that. But, uh, until, in the Buddha's words, we've gone beyond 
gone beyond what is impermanent, then we're always going to have a sense uh, in the Christian tradition of what they call holy discontent. No matter how okay we are with change, there's just something, mm, something not quite, not quite right yet, not quite fully fulfilling yet. And this is something very deep in us spiritually. There's T.S. Eliot uh, in, uh, in Four Quartets, he's the poet, he says, where is there an end to it? Where is there an end to it? All this change. We just see change over and over and over. Where is there an end to it? One of the great... Uh, Christian mystic, St. John of the Cross, I think it was either the 14th century or I think the 14th century, and uh, lived in Spain, was a Carmelite monk, and uh, uh, really a great mystic. And he coined two, two phrases, which uh, one of which has come very much into current sort of usage, dark night of the sense and dark night of the soul. And... Um, Especially dark night of the soul is something that's sort of in in well, spiritual circles, in psychological circles. Uh, but he, he meant it in a little bit of a different way. And he meant it in exactly this way, that somehow through practice, the, the being, the, the soul in him, has, has seen all this change and has lost its mm, immature infatuation with things. And it knows that the things of this world can't really give a complete fulfillment and it wants to know God the soul wants to know God and yet doesn't cannot somehow make that leap so the things of the world aren't doing it but also notices that the uh, occasional or even common spiritual kind of opening spiritual experiences are also not God. They're experiences that come and go, and they can't in themselves give us, give us a lasting fulfillment. The world of the senses and the world of the, the spiritual experiences. And the soul enters a dark night. It doesn't know. Uh, it's lost its reference point in experiences. That's the meaning of the dark night. And we can feel that in practice when we we really go far in this contemplation of three characteristics everything is that how are we going to go beyond as the Buddha said sometimes people backtrack and they say well actually the three characteristics are ultimate truth that is the ultimate truth of things they're impermanent they're unsatisfactory and they're not self but actually the Buddha never said that they're not ultimate so we're kind of stuck What's the way forward? What's the way through? Actually, at that point, we have to look even deeper still and see if everything is impermanent, uh, we have to understand something about things. For a thing to be impermanent, it takes... It takes it to be a thing, and it takes there to be time. Something so fundamental about our way of looking, that there are things and then there is time, is actually maybe not, not true. We need to actually go really 
really and dissolve <coughs> that into. So that's one one way. The other way is actually, uh, and this is the way that St. John on the Cross uh, forwarded, is actually, he says, the soul just waits in darkness. The soul just waits in silence. So we sense just this, uh, in a way, loss of infatuation with things. And then there's just a waiting in the silence, in the space. Actually, T.S. Eliot talks about that too. He says, uh, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not, re- for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. There, there are many ways that we as human beings can actually look at the world. It's quite extraordinary. This is something unique to human beings. There are so many ways that we can look at the world and interpret the world. Very, very few of them lead to ultimate freedom. Very, very few of the ways we look at the world lead to ultimate freedom. There are, there are many ways of looking at the world, and there are many ways, too, that lead to a sense of relative freedom. So the other day I was teaching somewhere, somewhere else, and the person was asking about astrology and, and all that, and I personally don't have a problem with that as a way of, of looking at certain issues in one's life and, and a way of really moving towards a degree of, of freedom in one's life. And certainly uh, the different kind of psychotherapies that are, that are around can be really helpful uh, to find a relative, a relative sense, a sense of relative freedom in life. But our, our fulfillment as human beings ca- cannot be on that level. We, 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 something in us hungers for something deeper. And we won't have that fulfillment until, until the freedom goes beyond that relative level. We get a taste of that. And it's not the case, it's not the case, uh, we often hear it, but it's not the case that we kind of have to finish with all our psychological work and our work on the relative level and on our personality issues and all that before we begin to uh, move towards a more more complete freedom. It's not the case. And sometimes I think we actually, you know, we have to admit to ourselves that we do in a way we, we like and we are actually a little bit addicted to our, our self-story and the drama that that brings. And we, we have a... we're not too keen to let go of that. But maybe to be willing to actually try both, to explore ourselves and, and our story and our history and our past and what that means and the ways we 
uh, the patterns we have, but also to explore this this other, this moving beyond all that, through all of that. And we try both and experience both, and then see. And it's not the case that uh, you know we we can be we don't have to be worried that self will always will go away completely, and we'll be left without a sense of self and just a sort of uh, blank zombie shuffling around guy house for the rest of our lives. <laughs> Self never actually completely goes away. Um, sometimes you may be wondering. <laughs> self never actually completely goes away. Um, but the problem of self can go away. The problem of it can go away. We have a moment of silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.